Well, this morning, as is now obvious, we're going to take one more run at 1 Samuel 20. Uh, these Old Testament narratives, they're, they're really so rich. We could spend Sunday after Sunday mining any one of them at, at great length. Um, and, and sometimes we do find ourselves doing what we're doing this morning, uh, which is taking a second pass at a passage we've already studied. So uh, when we studied 1 Samuel 20 last week, we saw that a main thing, and really we could say it's, it's probably the main thing in 1 Samuel chapter 20, is, is that uh, tension that's there for Jonathan as he remains committed to David even though he has big questions. So there is this, this tension that exists in the passage. Jonathan is committed to God's anointed king even though he doesn't understand everything that's going on with regard to God's anointed king. And that's a main theme that's worked out then throughout, throughout the passage. Uh, but another theme emerges as we read this, and you notice it immediately just in the flow of the, of the narrative of 1 Samuel and as we come to this, and that is uh, the friendship that's portrayed between David and Jonathan. Uh, the friendship that's portrayed between them here is profound. It's one of the, the main, it's a main narratival uh, picture of friendship in the Scriptures. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to uh, take another pass through this chapter and focus on, on the friendship of Jonathan and David that's here. So our focus this morning will be on friendship. Um, it was C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, who, who said this about friendship. He said, he said, friendship is unnecessary. And then he went on to explain what he meant. He said, friendship is unnecessary like philosophy or art is unnecessary in that it has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which gives value to survival. So, so, so Lewis is making the point that you don't have to have deep friendships to keep on living, just like you don't have to have art to keep on living. However, deep friendships are part of what make life worth living, is what C.S. Lewis is trying to communicate. And we know this, that to have friendships that run deep, to have those people we can uniquely connect with, that's something that's life-giving for us. Uh, just as, as an immediate example from my own experience, when I was back for my last class in St. Louis, uh, one of the professors had done a, a, quite a bit of research on, on longevity in ministry for pastors. And so he was asking questions in his research like, what factors contribute to a pastor staying in a, in, a, in a position, in a church, in a healthy way for seven years or more? That was one of the questions he was asking. And, and one of the main factors he discovered, uh, which contributed to, to faithful longevity in pastoral ministry, was the pastor had close personal friendships. So the pastor had close people uh, to, to whom he could, he could relate to as, as a confidant, which was the word he, this professor was using in his research, but he was using that word just in terms of deep personal friendships. With good friendships, healthy, long-term pastoral ministry flourishes. That's just a, a, an example. But we have examples of, of recognizing this from all across different areas of life. And, and we understand the significant need that friendships represent in our lives, while at the same time they can be such a challenge to genuinely uh, pursue and to and to, and to help foster. Uh, the Survey Center on American Life, they published findings on friendship in America about a year ago. In June of 2021, they published some survey results, and they reported that 30 years ago, 55% of men reported having six close personal friends. That was 30 years ago. However, presently, as of June of 2021, that number is down to 25% of men uh, making the same claim. 
So, so there's a dramatic drop in, in men, in this case, who have a, a handful of close personal friends. And in addition, the survey found that 15% of men report having no close friendships at all, which is four times higher a number than it was in 1990. And, and it's not just men. Friendship among women is on the decline as well. The survey discovered, though the results weren't quite as dramatic. Um, but all that to say we need friends, and having friends is not an easy thing. We feel the reality of this. In fact, I joke with, with Julia. I, don't, I guess it's not a joke, uh, but I talk with Julia from time to time, and I've told you some of this too. Uh, one of my main goals in life, right up there with riding my motorcycle to Alaska, one of my main goals in life is to be an old man who has friends to get older and to have those close personal friendships that continue on through the years. Because as experience and statistics bears witness to the reality, we, we don't just fall into meaningful relationships that last. They don't just happen uh, apart from, from significant effort on our part. And we need those meaningful relationships because pr- friendships, according to the way God has created us as humans, according to the way God has made the world work, friendships contribute uh, enormously to our flourishing good in this life. Uh, along these lines, I don't mean to overwhelm with different uh, research things, but this is just interesting. In my reading this week, I came across a study uh, led and published by a Harvard professor, which was released on August 1st this year. Maybe you've seen something about this in the New York Times. David Brooks actually wrote a column uh, regarding this study. Uh, but it was a study around the place of friendships as it relates to children who grow up in economic poverty and what it takes to transition to living above poverty, poverty levels as adults. So that's what the study was looking at. And the study found that children who were from more poor socioeconomic levels had a 20% increase in income as adults if, as they were growing up, they had friendships that existed with children from higher income brackets. And the interesting thing was that these cross-class friendships, we could fuss with the terminology, but that's the terminology they used in this Harvard study, these cross-class friendships had a stronger uh, impact on future economic stability than school quality, family structures, job availability, or a community's racial composition. It's an amazing finding. So friendships were the determining factor in greater economic stability as kids grew into adulthood coming from more impoverished backgrounds, moving to more, uh, more financial stability, which is just fascinating. But what it tells us empirically is that we need friends and that friends are necessary in our lives if we're going to progress in a, in a, in a regular, fruitful way uh, as, as we go on with our days. And as we come to this passage in the Bible this morning, we find some very practical help. And, and not just that, but we actually find some very profound truth around genuine, meaningful friendship, not least of all, as it relates to our life of faith under God. Uh, this passage in 1 Samuel 20, it doesn't say everything we could say from the Bible about friendship. In fact, we can't even say everything from 1 Samuel 20 that just this chapter tells us about friendship this morning. We can't do all that, but but we can observe a lot in this text. And what's here can certainly come to us for our encouragement because not only do we need friendships, but we need to understand them. And this passage helps us think through some things with, with greater clarity. And so with all that said, uh, we'll start in this morning. And I'll just share with you, in terms of a format for our study, uh, we're not going to go uh, verse by verse, section by section through this chapter. We did that a little more last week. Instead, what we're going to do is think about things a little bit more thematically. And we're going to gather our, our thoughts on friendship from this chapter under three words. And the first word, and I'll just give them to you, you can write them down or it might just help as we, as we go. But the first word is need, so our need for friendship. The second word is nature. 
So what the nature of friendship, especially as it's portrayed here. And then the third word is pointer. Uh, the friendship is de defined here is a, is a pointer, as we'll see, to something even greater. Um, so that's, that's how we'll work through it today. Need, nature, and pointer. Um, first of all, then, we'll think about need. And, and it goes without saying to begin that, that we need friends. We need them. Um, but from a passage like this, we can get a little more specific and say we especially need friends when things get difficult. Now, now when things get difficult in life, typically it seems people, myself, ourselves, we can identify with this, we find ourselves uh, going in one of two different directions. Uh, in fact, these two, these two directions, these two postures when things get difficult are reflected, as is so much of life, in the great philosopher Paul Simon's songs. So, so one posture when things get difficult is, is to resist all interaction. We know what that's like when things are hard, and we, we tend toward isolation, so Paul Simon sings. He says, I've built walls, you know the song? A fortress deep and mighty that none may, none may penetrate. And then he says, I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving. I disdain. What does he say? I'm a rock. I'm an island. Okay? So, so there's one posture we can adopt toward friendship, which says something like, I may be going through difficulty, but I'm not going to let anybody in. No friendship for me. It just brings hurt to me. I'm a rock. I'm an island. I'm going to do it by myself. And then uh, Paul Simon, he must have had a better day because then he writes another song which says the exact opposite. Right? He says, when, we're we when you're weary, feeling small, when tears are in your eyes, I will dry them all. I'm on your side when times get rough and friends just can't be found. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. It's a very sacrificial song about friendship. So, so it's not, I'm a rock, I'm an island, but now he's singing about, about being a friend who comes to dry our tears and lay down so, so, that we can, so that we can have a way through the difficult times that we're facing. So these are two big options when we're facing hardship. There's isolation on the one hand, or there's deep and meaningful, comforting friendship on the other. There are songs about both, because no doubt at some level, we have felt ourselves in positions of dealing with both. We've been in both of those places. I'm going through great difficulty. I just want to be left alone. Nobody talk to me. I'm going through great difficulty, and I know I need some significant support in my life if I'm actually going to make it through this thing okay. And as we think about the example of David and Jonathan's friendship, the very first thing we see in the text is that David is not a rock in an island. David is not one locked out from friendship, nor is Jonathan one locked out from friendship for that matter. But instead, when things are at their most tumultuous, we see David going to Jonathan. And we read this starting in verse 1. Uh, you remember we talked about it last week, but just to remind ourselves of the context, we know Saul, Jonathan's dad, is so consumed with jealousy over David and his successes that Saul is absolutely committed to killing David. We know that from the narrative so far. Saul sent assassins to David's house back in chapter 19. Saul even tried to chase David down personally when David was hiding out in a community of the prophets. Saul wants David dead. So, so, so the king that David has selflessly served, the king that David has even compassionately served, he's determined to murder him. So context set, it's a bad day for David. And, and, and David describes this bad day, as we mentioned last week, he describes this bad day in his own poem in Psalm 59, where he makes this comment about the men seeking his life at Saul's direction. So it's an insight into David's mind and all that's going on. Back in chapter 19, Saul's after him. He wants to kill him. David described the assassin sent to him like this. He says, They return at evening, snarling like dogs and prowling around the city. Look, they spew from their mouths sharp words from their lips, 
for who they say will hear. What David recognizes on the part of those who want to do him harm is that those who would hurt David presume David is in complete isolation. We'll do bad things to David. We will speak bad things about David and who will hear. Nobody's even going to care. And while David is trusting the Lord, whom he describes as his refuge during these circumstances in Psalm 59, while David is no doubt trusting the Lord for his help, what does David do? Well, he gets done writing his Psalm 59 poem. He escapes the clutches of Saul once again. And instead of remaining isolated like his opponents think he is, instead David proves them wrong and runs to the company of his closest friend. Right? In the midst of all the turmoil, verse 1 of 1 Samuel 20, David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came to Jonathan. So in the midst of presumably the most severe circumstances of his life to date, David prayed, he wrote Psalm 59, he prayed, and then he quite literally in the Hebrew, he fled, he ran to his friend. And David and his friend had some things to talk through. They, they, had, they had things to work out. We know that from last week. There were questions, and then that goes on in this chapter. But we can't miss the connection between David's opponent saying, none will hear when, Dave, when we take David down. Nobody's going to care. And David fleeing to Jonathan, his friend, who does hear and who does care and who does listen. And not only that, but David's friend Jonathan will say in verse 4, whatever you need, I'll do. I'm for you, David. And in this circumstance, we see something so central to our understanding of and really our pursuit of what true friendship represents. True friendship is necessary because not only is isolation just bad for us in our human condition generally, but when things are down, when things are at their hardest, uh, to quote Paul Simon, when we're weary and feeling small, we need close relationships for the support they provide. It's just part of the humanness. It's how God has put us together, which is something that we know inherently, but, but it's not bad to have that reminder. We need the reminder of that reality. We need to be reminded that close friendships and pursuing those friendships, especially in the darkest day, even if it's like Jonathan and David, where there's really just one close friend between the two, that they wouldn't have even made the statistic that was reported. They don't have six friends. They have each other. They have one close friend, each of them. Uh, one close friend is all that matters. But, but what's interesting about isolation, what we can understand about isolation in a context especially of turmoil that we need to resist and what this passage helps remind us about isolation, when we're not pursuing those relationships, it, has, it tends to take on a life of its own. David could have remained removed. David could have remained isolated. He could have remained hidden and gone from place to place without seeking his friend. But that tends to take on a life of its own in our own life. Uh, because, for example, we may have not had the closeness for a while, and as a result, what happens? We know this because we've experienced it. We actually stop feeling our need for the closeness even though we need it really badly. Isn't that what happens when we, when we spend some time in isolation? I mean, we've just spent two years in it. We know what this is like, right? Or, or because we haven't had the support, the strange thing that starts to, to work out in our hearts is like this atrophy that starts happening in our hearts because we haven't had the support of friends. We actually stop longing for the support of friends, even though we still need the support of friends very badly. There's this self-perpetuating cycle that isolation can work in our hearts. And so we can slide further and further away from meaningful relationships. And on the other side of that too, even as we think about the, the, the lack of giving that is, that is there, if we're not engaged in friendships, when we don't engage for a while, there's that selfishness that can set in, which feels very comfortable and we can sit with that. I don't really want to engage now because after all, I've had this period of reprieve and it's really nice just to think about me. 
I mean, that's something that's happened over the last couple of years that we have to get past. We fi- I find myself, we find ourselves having to get past that. We get used to just thinking about us and my little tiny circle. And that isolation has this momentum then of selfishness in our lives, uh, which, which leads to all kinds of, to all kinds of turmoil. So, so all that to say, a reminder of the place of friendship is critical for us, not least of all when the days are heavy. And what we see here with David is a primary order of business for David is not to isolate in a panicked way that just seeks safety above all else, but instead he goes and he finds Jonathan, and in finding Jonathan, he finds, he finds a friend. He finds somebody who is very committed, as we saw last time, to supporting him in the midst of the difficulty that he's facing. David ran, ran to his friend. And you remember from the gospel, in the, in, the, in the darkest of days, you remember how Jesus did the same thing? Jesus, Jesus called for his friends, even though they let him down? There in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember that? How he took his closest friends with him further into the garden to pray. They slept, they let Jesus down. But even the master of the universe, in the fullness of his humanity, didn't seek to face his darkest hour without calling for the support of those who were close to him. When we think of friendship, a first word that, that, that can come to our mind is need, not least of all when things are heavy. So it's just, it's just worth reflecting on all this. Do, do we have close friends that we can engage with, especially on the darkest day? Who can I run to? Who can you run to? And then the other way is true as well. Who can run to you? Who have you fostered a relationship with in such a way that they would call you on their darkest day and say, come, I'm in immediate need of assistance and I need, I need to rest in your care for me. We need these people. We need to be these kinds of people. David didn't have six big friends he ran to. He just had one. And at this point, that's all he seems to have. That certainly seems to be the only friend he had. But he ran to him when he was in need of help. And we recognize friendship is a matter of need. That's a primary matter that we need to have, have fixed in our minds. Uh, so friendship is a matter of need. Secondly, in this passage, we can move from thinking about the need for friendship to the nature of friendship. And, and especially the nature of friendship as it's portrayed here. Because this is something that is unique and encouraging for us, especially as we think about our life together as a church. Um, obviously, to, to have and seek companionship that reflects loyalty and support, which is what friendship is, companionship that reflects loyalty and support, that's what being a friend is, that's something that, in a sense, is common to all humanity. All, all humanity, to a certain degree, uh, engages in friendship at a, at a certain level. However, there is a uniqueness to the nature of David and Jonathan's friendship and that it's a friendship based on a covenant. And and in case we think this isn't important, in each instance of Jonathan and David interacting with each other, this covenant is brought up again. There are three main interactions that Jonathan and David have in in the narrative and in each of those instances, the idea of their covenant is brought up. So first of all, back in chapter 18, we were told that Jonathan and David were bound in close friendship and they reflected that by entering into a covenant together. That was back in chapter 18. Then here in chapter 20, their covenant is, we could say it's renewed if you like. It's expanded in verse 16 where Jonathan makes a covenant with the whole house of David. So now they're speaking about about a relationship between their families generationally. That's what's going on. And then the last time David and Jonathan see each other, which will be in chapter 23, there again in chapter 23, verse 18, we're told that Jonathan and David made a covenant. Now, uh, the meaning of covenant in biblical language is, is that of 
communicating the, the strongest possible commitment that people or groups can share. That's, that's what a, a covenant is getting after. It reflects loyalty that a person commits to, even on pain of death in the Scriptures. And, and while the, the covenantal language of Jonathan and David's friendship is unique, that there's something generally that's noteworthy in this deep and committed promise they make to be loyal to each other, and what's noteworthy here is that their commitment to one another is actually sourced in a commitment under Yahweh, the covenant-making and keeping God. So, so through, throughout history, as we read our Bibles, the way the Lord deals with His people, the way the Lord commits Himself and relates to His people is through covenants. So God makes promises and commits Himself to do exactly what He says He'll do uh, for those whom he's, he's committed Himself to. And in Jonathan and David's friendship, we see that their covenant commitment to one another is actually grounded in a deep awareness of the Lord's covenant commitment to His people. So for example, in chapter 20, in the context of all this, this loyal fidelity that's taking place here between Jonathan and David, we have Yahweh's name, which is the covenant name of God. We have that name Yahweh repeated 13 times in the span of this chapter. And, and just listen to some of the ways the name, of, the name of the Lord appears. Listen to this. So for example, in verse 8, David says this to Jonathan. Deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought me into a covenant with you before the Lord. So David's referencing the covenant of friendship that exists between him, him he and Jonathan, but, but connects it to their relationship of faith before the Lord. David brings that in. In verse 14, Jonathan speaks to David and says, If I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. It's actually the word hesed there. Show me hesed from the Lord. That's the, the Hebrew word that speaks to the loyal love of God toward His people reflected in God's own covenant commitment to us. It's a very loaded word. Jonathan employs that language when he references David's treatment of him. Extend to me, David, the loyal love that Yahweh has extended to us as, as His people. That's what he's calling for. And then down in verse 23, we read where Jonathan says, as for the matter you and I have spoke about, the Lord will be, and then to try to smooth things out, the CSB translation says the Lord will be a witness. Actually, the Hebrew text doesn't have the word witness there. All it says is the, the Lord will be between me and you. The Lord will be between me and you. The same statement is made in the last verse of the chapter where Jonathan says the Lord will be between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. The Lord between us. So, so just in terms of thinking about the nature of Jonathan and David's friendship here, something is obviously very unique in that the nature of their friendship is not a basic human commitment that's sourced in something like maybe shared experiences. It's not something that's sourced in, in similar interests or common goals or, 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 or parallel phases of life or, or the fact your kids are all on the same soccer team or something like that. That's not what's going on here. What's here is not the average stuff of meaningful human relationships in general. What's here is a unique friendship in that the commitment David and Jonathan share is ultimately sourced in a framework of faith. It's a relationship that stands, as it were, with the Lord between them. The loyal love of God toward them, the hesed of God toward them, is the loyal love that Jonathan and David are then committed to exercising toward one another. The nature of their friendship is sourced, as Jonathan says two times, the nature of their friendship is sourced with Yahweh in between them. He's in the middle of their friendship. That that's what ultimately makes things so rich for them. The loyal love of God toward them informs their loyal love toward one another. 
That's, that's the framework for their, for their friendship. And so there's an extraordinary reality here that we can pay close attention to. Because as those who know the living God, as those who are united in the new covenant because of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see how there's a uniqueness of bond that exists in friendship with those in the family of Christ that transcends normal human levels of friendship commitment. That because the steadfast love of God that we have experienced, we are then renewed in through Christ to extend to one another in the unique community and commitment of faith and care and love and all of those kinds of things we're called to. It's a covenantal kind of friendship that we share today as a local church. Even as we think about our relationship together as a church, I was thinking about that this week just in, in reflecting on this passage. We, we can say that the Lord has blessed us with a very unique loving community here. That is a blessing from God that we enjoy. We enjoy close friendships here, as it should be in the church. In fact, I know, you know, that on your darkest day, on my darkest day, there are so many people I could call, all of you I could call, and there would be people on my doorstep in a moment to help me. And you know that's true for you as well, based on the community of faith that we share. That is a unique level of friendship that, that we share and a unique bond that we share. What unites us together is, is not, is not the, the quote-unquote normal stuff of friendships. It's not, first and foremost, similar interests that make us close friends. Not that we don't have similar interests, but that's not primary. It's not that, that we're all in the same life phase that brings a level of closeness. The closeness that exists for us is not primarily sourced in the normal stuff of friendship. Right? And, and if I could, I'll just say this, and, and Josh can get me in trouble later on, but I will say this, Josh, Josh is one of my closest friends in the whole world. Josh is one of my closest friends in the whole world. In fact, if Julia and I can't make health care decisions in an emergency, he's the one who makes them for us, right? That's how much I value his friendship. But what bonds us so closely is not, first of all, immediate common interests that we all share. I'll tell you this, my favorite vehicle is my 1989 Ford Bronco that actually has negative gas mileage. Josh's favorite vehicle is a new electric vehicle that he bought. That's like about as different as, as, as possible. I put holes in the ozone layer just looking at the Bronco. Right? And he cruises around being very kind to the, all, all of those kinds of things. So, so there's, there's common interests that, 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 are, that are not immediately at the fore there of our relationship. It's not that we don't have any common interests, but, but he's a friend I trust with my life, with my family even. And why is that? Well, our relationship is that rich because we have this common bond of faith together. We have a bond that transcends the normal framework of, of nostalgia and all of those kinds of things that might otherwise make a human relationship meaningful. The bond we share is rooted in the fact that we share a covenanted commitment to the Lord God himself and we extend that love to one another just as we as we all share together in the context of a local church this is a bond we share with fellow Christian believers that transcends all regular commonality and overrides all differences and and, and just on that note we remind ourselves that while while many meaningful relationships exist in many spheres we all have them and as, as we recognize the true challenge of having close friends and keeping close friends, which can be hard, we ought to recognize that in the church, we are surrounded by those who share a capacity for common fidelity toward one another, which extends from the fidelity of God himself. And in that, we have a unique opportunity to work out relationships in a significant way that we otherwise would not enjoy. There's something uniquely sweet about this. 
In fact, it's interesting just to see how this kind of loyal commitment works out in the passage here. And we saw this briefly last week, but thinking about it from our friendship angle, um, where, where we have in the middle of this section when Jonathan interacts with King Saul finally at that feast he goes to. And remember how Saul says all those horrible things about Jonathan about Jonathan's mom. He says all these horrible things, and then he tries to kill Jonathan with a spear. So Jonathan is offended in multiple different ways. And then in verse 34, we're told that in response to his dad's you know, vitriol, which is very hurtful, specified toward Jonathan, point of the spear specified toward Jonathan, we're told Jonathan got up from the table fiercely angry. Now, it's just interesting to note that that term, fiercely angry, shows up in the Old Testament. And when it does, scholars point out that it is a word that speaks to a fury generated by deep disappointment. It's not your average anger. Fury generated by deep disappointment. So Jonathan is devastatingly mad at his dad. He's so upset, we're told, in verse 34, he didn't eat food for a day. And, And why is he so upset? Is it because his dad said so many mean things to him? Is it because his dad tried to kill him with a spear? Is Jonathan devastatingly angry because he's been so personally offended? No. No, the text tells us in verse 34, Jonathan is so upset because of his father's shameful behavior toward David. David. So one scholar says this is the highest expression of loyal love in a friendship represented anywhere in the history of human writing. That's what one one scholar says. You know you have a very unique friend. When somebody says something deeply offensive and hurtful to them, but they are more concerned about you than they are themselves. That is a good friend. There is a costly and genuine concern for the other that's not just present, but primary in this kind of covenantal has said the steadfast love of God extended from us to others in that kind of friendship. Which, which, of course, is the very nature of our concern for one another and the nature of, of the friendship we enjoy in the family of God. Isn't that what Paul really appeals to in his letter to the, to the Philippians? What does he say? He tells them to consider others above themselves. Well, why are they supposed to consider others above themselves? Well, they're supposed to have the, their, the mind that is in Christ Jesus, Jesus' own mindset, which was what? He gives himself up entirely in order that we could be saved. He gives up the glories of heaven all the way down to the humility of the cross so that we could be rescued. This consideration of others, others being our priority, is right at the center of what it means for Christians to have relationships with one another in a meaningful way. And in a passage like this, we see it's right at the center of what it means to be friends with each other. Again, no other relationships are sourced in something so life-giving. And, and so we can just say that this, this frames not only, not only how we think about friendship in general, Obviously, we have friends outside of the church, and that's a good thing. We should, all of, that kind of, all of that kind of stuff. But there's something very unique here in that we have a unique sphere of friendship to pursue, and we have a very unique expression of friendship here as a local congregation. This is why Paul can also say things like, love keeps no record of wrong. Because guess what will entirely undo any kind of covenantally loving friendship? If I start keeping a list of the ways you annoy me, and if you start keeping a list of the ways I annoy you, that's not love. Love overlooks offenses. Love is forbearing. Love forgives. All of these kinds of things. We exercise all of that so uniquely in a Christian community that it allows this bond to be maintained even when things would otherwise go haywire in our relationship. So there's that. 
And there's also the fact that in this, we see who we can uniquely pursue in terms of fulfilling this need we have in our life because the commonalities we share ultimately reside around the cross of Christ. He's the one who unites us and he's the one who draws us together. And so the uniqueness of the friendship that's reflected here, the covenantal nature of it, as God has shown love to me, David, you show that love to me as well. That as God shows this love to us, this is the love that we're extending to one another, the loyalty, the commitment, all of those kinds of things. It's a unique friendship that we share as a community of God's people. So we could say more on that. I'm going to try and restrain myself. Uh, we'll stop there, but need, we have need for friendship, that's there. We also have the nature of friendship, we talk about that. Then we'll just say one final thing, we'll talk about the pointer of friendship that this passage is, is presenting. And, and in, when I say pointer, I think you know what I mean. I don't mean like here are seven good tips for being a nice friend, uh, but, it, but, but, but I mean there's a pointer here that is directing our attention uh, to something much more glorious about true friendship as it's revealed to us in Jesus Christ. So, so think this out with me. This is one of the amazing riches of this passage. Think about this. In this passage, we have David, God's clear anointed king, who's replacing Jonathan's dad, Saul, as king. Saul's been disobedient. He's disqualified. God has done with him. God has anointed David. And not only has God anointed David as king, but David has already been recognized by, by uh, Jonathan as God's anointed king back in chapter 18. And then again here in our passage in verse, eight, in verse 13, um, Jonathan recognizes it again. David is the king and he's, he has proved himself to be the deliverer God's people need in multiple different ways. Not least of all with that whole Goliath episode. So much so that people are singing about his victories. People are celebrating David. He is God's king. No higher position if we think about it in the context of the narrative than the king that God has appointed. However, in David and Jonathan's friendship, we have to notice something extremely unique in the way David's royalty plays out. This is very interesting. In this passage, we would expect, because we know, we know David to be the, the, the one God has chosen, we would expect Jonathan to be depicted as the servant of David. Wouldn't we expect that? Jonathan even portrays himself that way in chapter 18, giving David all his royal garments. He's, he's confessing that his servitude to David. Um, but instead of, of Jonathan being portrayed as David's servant in this passage, things are, things are exactly the opposite in two big places. So in verses 7 and 8, David refers to himself as Jonathan's servant three times. Right, in CSB translation, they skip over one of them in verse 8, but it's there in the Hebrew text. David refers to himself as Jonathan's servant three times. Fast forward to the end of the narrative, and in verse 41, we have David bowing down before Jonathan three times. Right? That's the most recorded bowing in one incident in the whole Bible. Three times David bows before Jonathan. And bowing in that context is a sign of faithful service. I'll, I'll be your servant. I'll be loyal to you. That's what, that's what bowing means. So three times David verbally refers to himself as Jonathan's servant. Three times David physically represents the fact that he is, that he is there for Jonathan's service. He bows down demonstrating servant loyalty, which at first pass ought to strike us as completely out of place. Because Jonathan is the one who is not going to be on the throne, and David is the one who is being elevated to the throne. Who's the king here? Who's the one recognized by God and by Jonathan even as the powerful, anointed victor and ruler of God's people? It's David. David is the guy. And in this friendship, who is the one who postures as a servant? Well, it's God's anointed king. It's David. 
And you see immediately in that, don't you, the amazing pointer that this is giving us. Fast forward, for example, to John chapter 15 and listen to the words of Christ. He says to his disciples, he says, No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. That's what he said. The ultimate king, the better David Jesus, he, he comes and lays his life down. He takes to himself the ultimate posture of a servant by bearing our sins in his own body on the cross. He serves us to the point of paying the eternal cost required to reconcile us to God, and then he calls us friends. David and Jonathan's friendship is ultimately a pointer to the greatest friendship available to all the human race, the friendship of God's final and ultimate anointed King Jesus. That's the glories that this is driving us forward to. Jesus came first as a servant, serving those who will come to him all the way and trust in him. They'll come to him. He, will, he serves them all the way to death, even death on a cross, and then he calls us friends. And as we consider that pointer from the friendship of Jonathan and David to the friendship of Christ with his people, we find something more meaningful than any other friendship could ever possibly be. And this is there for us even as we consider Jonathan and David. David goes to Jonathan. Jonathan's with David. They really only have one friend. And, and while we recognize the wisdom and even the very much the biblical wisdom in manifold counselors and friends and all of these things, there is a picture in this passage where there is one friend who's going to fulfill my need. There is one friend who I can ultimately come to who will stay with me, be committed to me, see me through the difficulty that I'm facing. And this passage is pointing us to the fact that that friend is the servant king who comes anointed by God, powerful enough to save, but who is also the one who will serve and bring us into a place of eternal fellowship with God. And so through Jesus, the, the meaningful nature of our covenantal friendship exists with one another. And through Jesus, our eternal relationship with God himself rest secure in those things, in these things. And so we see that the, the life-giving friendship of the servant king is ultimately our greatest good, and we need that because there are times, whether it's in, it's in our loneliness or simply in our devotional lives, where we need the reminder of Jesus as our friend. He's the one we can go to with our, with our troubles. He's the one we can cry out to. He's the one who supports us. And so the hymn writer puts it so well, singing things like, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Remember that old hymn? Hallelujah, what a friend. And they sing, saving, helping, keeping, loving, he's with me to the end. Saving, helping, keeping, loving, he's with me to the end. Define friendship in, in better categories than that. This is who Jesus is for us. Saving, helping, keeping, loving, he's with me to the end. David and Jonathan ultimately will be separated in their friendship because of the turmoil that they're facing. With Jesus, there is no separation. With Jesus, there is no abandonment. With Jesus, there is only consistent and continual presence. Because he's the friend who, who, is, who is better than a brother. He is the friend who never forsakes his people. And he's the friend we ultimately rest in. And so we're thankful for a passage like this because for all it says, and it says so much, it gives us some of these main things to think through. Not only about our own interactions and relationships and the priorities uh, that, sh that, that, that can be reflected there, but ultimately where our rest is, where our true friend is ultimately found, the one who will never fail us. Let's pray together. So, Father, we're thankful for your word, and we pray we would be renewed in it. We pray that we would be reminded of uh, the realities of Christ and who he is for us. And we pray, Father, that we would uh, pursue one another. We need the reminders to pursue one another. We need the friendships uh, that are represented in this room as we extend uh, the love to one another that you've first shown us. We pray that we would do that well and in a way that uh, brings support and offers sacrificial care, uh, ultimately, 
upholding your people, upholding one another in this life of faith that we're called to live. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.